This is the No Stroke Podcast with your co-hosts, David Dancero and Michael Garrow, helping you to support and thrive in life after stroke. Their podcast is designed for educational and community support purposes only and should not replace medical treatment and guidance of your own health professional team. Welcome, everyone, to episode 35 of the No Stroke Podcast. My name is David Dansero, and I'm here with my co-host, Michael Garrow. Hi, Mike. How are we doing, David? We're doing well. I like the uh, I like the swag tonight, David. We're um, we're recording it later in the evening. It's uh, we're we've officially hit um, sweater season, mm-hmm. which means you're able to pull out the No Stroke Podcast. Yeah. It was time. Love I had to get the wrinkles wrinkles out, and uh, <laughs> but I'm uh, I'm nice and toasty here. Uh, so for those watching, maybe on YouTube, uh, you could if you're excited about the swag, maybe you want to get us to pre-order or get these on our website somehow, Mike. I think I think the holiday season means a, a re-up of a no stroke Let's, swag. Let's do it. Let's do Beanie, it. Beanies, sweaters, whatever whatever you'd like. We can make it happen. Let's try it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So it's uh, it's been, we recorded this episode last week, um, but anything pop up for in the news this the week happening right now? Anything happening? Yeah, actually a real interesting article out of a uh, 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 Neuro Rehab Times. I hadn't heard of that publication before, but they, Mm -hmm. their spotlight story, they're out of the UK and their uh, spotlight story uh, was uh, on um, Amelia Clark, who uh, is a brain injury survivor um, from multiple brain injuries many years ago. But the title is Breaking Down Boundaries After Brain Injury. Uh, her and her mom um, founded Same You, which we've talked a bit about before and in a recent um, episode with Dr. Nick Ward over there that we also talked about some intercollaboration they have, but the article is really dives into, um, you know, use their, her personal experience and uh, to, to really uh, challenge the stigma around brain injury and their, their advocacy around widening access to neuro rehab. So it's a really well done article with, uh, you know, part of their research, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about building out a platform for stroke uh, and survivorship they're doing something very similar. And, you know, certainly ours was on a much smaller scale. Um, but what they're really, you know, what they did in their research was fascinating to me in the article was really dove into thousands of brain injury survivor stories and just, you know, how access to care just dropped off, drops off a cliff mm-hmm. after that six weeks. And they're, they're yeah. all, I mean, we've talked know. to how many, yeah, we've talked to how many survivors, you know, and it's, it's that case across the globe, you know, it's, you know, when we were in working with the Irish population, you know, it's the same, like, you know, whether it, no matter where you are, you know, it's, it's that, you know, barrier to access, which, you know, it takes folks like Emily. So if you're not familiar with Emily Clark, um, she's a, she's an actress, um, best known for her role in Game of Thrones. And, you know, she's really taken this opportunity to, to advocate and and build a community and and really drive some change. So, yeah, it's been fascinating to see what they've done. Um, and you know, we'd love to maybe have a conversation with. Is it Jenny? Her mom's is that her mom? Uh, her mom is Jenny, correct? Yeah, 
yeah so i think she runs a lot of the the advocacy work and, and the um foundation so yeah it'd be great to to bring them on and kind of talk through you know what what they've been able to develop and, and some of what they're thinking for sure um, yeah, how about on your end mike what's in what's yeah. uh, sparked your interest yeah i think you know um going back to a previous guest brooke bedell that we had on geez at this stage maybe a year ago i think we had her on right yeah. before their last um strokes symposium so she's um from yukon health here in in the states uh hartford connecticut is, is where they're based out of but they they're putting on what's now their fourth annual um stroke symposium have a great lineup of speakers some survivors uh, you know and really be able to one cater this for a hybrid event which is cool so they'll have a zoom access link for folks to, you know if you're across the pond or if you're you know not local to connecticut um you could access the event on october 27th uh, from 5 to 7 p.m it will we'll share a link in our in the show notes um, and push it out on social as well yeah. if you're interested um, yeah we got a couple of weeks to help them promote that event uh, i think yeah. um yeah. It was successful for them in the past and glad to support their efforts. They're doing great work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let, let's jump into it. So this week we have Dr. Sadiq from, from uh, Hyperfine. So Hyperfine is a company that we spoke about kind of in this, in the news portion of our podcast. Probably, I think the first, first time we, notice of it was when they announced their partnership with uh Viz AI. That was about two months ago, I think. Um so we've been working with, with folks at Hyperfine to to make this happen. Um and we're you know delighted to have been able to speak with uh doc, Dr. Sadiq. So Dr. Sadiq is a serial entrepreneur, radiologist, and currently the chief medical officer and st- chief strategy officer at Hyperfine. Um, Hyperfine have created the world's first FDA-approved portable MRI scanner. Say that again, portable MRI scanner. It's kind of, you know, it's almost science fiction, right? You think of these big, massive machines down in the basement of a hospital, um, and they're, they're bringing that to the bedside. So it was a fascinating discussion to be able to really dive in and, and learn about the technology and, and the path forward for Hyperfine. Um, and, and Dr. Sadiq, you know, just in, in general, he has a fascinating background. So prior to Hyperfine, he actually founded a company called Higgy. And they, they, it's a con, uh, consumer health technology company that was acquired by Babylon Health, which is a huge uh, digital health player over in the UK um, on a multi-billion dollar SPAC transaction. And those those stations from Higgy are now located across the globe. I think they, he said that something close to 12,000 locations um, have this device, which is pretty much a health screen. If you walk into a retail clinic, you know, take your blood pressure, do a screening. Um, so really fascinating background. Prior to finding Higgy, he actually was a physician executive for Microsoft and was responsible for a platform for engineering and AI, which is like one of their first one of Microsoft's first steps into AI and machine learning. Uh, so, yeah, you know, he has a wealth of knowledge in this area, really took time, had a personal story that, that really connected, um, you know, him to Hyperfine and the mission that they're on. You know, and, and I think, you know, for us, it was a different conversation because we always focus on the, the post rehab, but 
ultimately door to needle time and what happens at that assessment stage and what hyperfine are able to do to shorten that window um, to get treatment for stroke survival. It's, it's just, it's really revolutionary. So super excited to dive into this one. Um, as always, you know, if you guys do enjoy this, please subscribe, like, share this with, with other folks in your network. Um, it does help. So we, uh, we'll dive into this one. I think we have a full slate of, of episodes lined up here for October. So excited to, to get these shared with you guys. And as always, thank you for yep. listening. Yeah, but we gotta we gotta keep moving in October to stay warm. We got a full we got a full lineup <laughs> going into the month. So That's enjoy it. this episode. Sweat, no stroke swag coming soon. Hi, Khan. Welcome to the No Stroke Podcast. So nice to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, we're you know, we're really excited to cover, you know, the work that Hyperfine is doing and more of this acute phase for stroke, right? You know, as we mentioned before we started recording here a lot of our episodes have solely focused on you know rehab life after stroke um but what we're hoping to cover here today is really an important phase of that door to needle time which ultimately impacts stroke recovery and outcomes and what you guys are building at, at hyperfine which i'll let you give the spiel on but it's, it's a pretty cool technology which is bringing an MRI machine to the bedside. So before we dive deep into that, um, you know, just for the audience, can you give a bit of background on your career to date and what led you to Hyperfine? Sure, absolutely. Again, thank you for inviting me. Um, have listened to a bunch of the podcasts. I'm a big fan. So uh, it's great to be to be here. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a radiologist. I'm currently the chief medical officer and chief strategy officer at Hyperfine. Uh, I started my career, um, you know, as a clinical radiologist trained at NYU and then at Geisinger Health System. Uh, my passion in the, in the early days of the career was in cardiac MR uh, initially, mostly. So focused on pediatric cardiac MR. Uh, and then I got interested into uh, computer vision, machine learning and informatics and ended up moving to University of Maryland to start uh, the, the U.S.'s first imaging informatics training program. I've trained most of the leaders in informatics uh, and did some of the early work in AI and computer vision, machine learning um, uh, in, in University of Maryland and was a director of MRI at the, at there at the time. Uh, I then moved to Johns Hopkins as a suite professor of radiology there and director for Center for Biomedical Imaging Informatics. Uh, same thing, continuing my informatics journey there. And in 2007, got recruited by Microsoft to come lead their healthcare AI team and medical imaging team. So moved to uh, Microsoft to, to do that. Uh, did some work in machine learning that led to uh, the algorithms for Xbox Connect. Um, so some contribution over there and then build the early cloud-based architecture for large image storage, which is Microsoft Azure now uh, so we started some of the early healthcare applications in azure also so so fascinating time uh, five years at microsoft uh, and then left microsoft to start my next company called higgy uh, higgy was a company to do hypertension management focused on elderly and low income so our main population was medicare advantage and medicaid type of uh, patients and uh, fashion was you know everybody was focusing on building technology and wearables for the quantified, quantified self crowd, 
but the problem really was in low income and elderly and patients, you know, people who are making less than $50,000 household income. And what are you doing there? So we came up with this idea of uh, a grocery store and pharmacy based blood pressure kiosk to use as a hypertension management solution, integration into the electronic health record, and eventually uh, build, uh, you know, a virtual uh, primary care network across all 50 states on top of that. And we exited it uh, to Babylon Healthcare as part of their 4.2 billion SPAC transactions. Um, so after that exit, you know, I was doing, um, you know, investing different places and on the board on different companies and got a call from uh, Dr. Jonathan Rothberg, who founded Hyperfine. Um, came on initially as a consultant in 2019 and then joined full-time in uh, six weeks before the pandemic started. <laughs> so the uh, rest is history. So here we are. <laughs> That's uh, Dr. Sadiq. So, so interesting. And you've been, you've been just a little bit busy. <laughs> and and uh, it, can you tell us, um, we have a sort of a, 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 thank you for listening to our show too, at the beginning, and you mentioned you're a fan, so that's uh, great to hear. Um, how, how did you, we, we have a mix in our audience. Uh, some are clinically oriented, some are entrepreneurs like yourself, physicians. Um, and some of our, 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 uh, our audience are also guests, uh, are, are also caregivers and survivors themselves. Um, when when we dive before we dive into hyperfine a little deeper, can you tell can you tell our audience a little bit more about sort of the the, the beginnings of like the MRI machine? Because a lot of folks that come in, they think of you know they had their brain image, they think of you know like a CAT scan or they think of other imaging technologies. Can you talk a little bit about that without getting too <laughs> without going too deep into it? Sure, absolutely. So MR uh, technology evolved um, over the years. The first MR scanners started to come out in uh, in the 70s, late 70s. And the early scanners are all made out of permanent magnets and low field strength, uh, similar to what we have. And then in 1986, uh, Picker International, which then ended up becoming GE Healthcare, commissioned the first 1.5 Tesla MR scanner. So the, the MRs are scanner are measured based on the field strength of the magnet and which is measured in Teslas. So most common MR scanner you will see in the hospital is a 1.5 Tesla scanner. And what, what MR scanner is doing is really a majority of them are imaging hydrogen atoms or protons. And they look at density of protons or intensity generated by the proton and how it reacts. So proton in water molecules, proton in carbohydrates, proteins, fats, they all react. Uh, they all have different properties uh, under a magnetic field. And those differences are what we ended up uh, uh, taking advantage of to generate the image and be able to see those tissues differently. So it's really a proton imager if you think of it that way. Um, if I wanna give an analogy how it works, it's a combination of a microwave oven and electric generator, right? So think of electric generator, how does it work? You move a magnet inside a coiled electromagnet and that moving a magnet inside another magnet generates electric current that is measured, that's taken by the coils and powers up your light. So what, what, what the microwave oven does is puts radio frequency pulse to vibrate the water molecules in the food, and that's how they heat up. So what we do is in MR, we throw that RF radio frequency pulse 
that vibrates the hydrogen atoms and water molecules in your human body, which are tiny magnets, right? Proton is a tiny magnet. And as it moves because of that uh, after vibrate recovering back to align with the main magnetic field, that movement generates electric current in the co receive coils that we then detect. And that movement is different based on which molecule the hydrogen atom is attached to. And that's how we would see difference. So hopefully that was a very layman understanding of how MR works. Um, so that's kind of the origin story. Um, and the the once, you know, in the early days were low field strength. And when uh, Picker started the 1.5 Tesla MR scanner, then the, the, you know, the arm race to making the bigger and bigger magnet started. So it akin to went towards the, you know, how mainframes got developed, you know, taking up large rooms, requiring special people to use it. And then here comes Hyperfine disrupting that like a laptop disrupted mainframe computers, right? How do we actually make it such that it's simple to use, anybody can use it and moves uh, where the patient is, you know, being patient, being thinking of patient, the fir patient first and others later and really making convenient for the patient. Uh, so that was kind of the evolution of MR, how it's happened. The other thing that's happened in MR is that specialty MRs have developed. So we think MR is just as one modality, but there are multiple, right? There are MR scanners of different field strength that are used for different applications. There are MR scanners dedicated for just knee imaging, for example. There are MR scanners dedicated for baby imaging, neonatal scanners. Their MR scanners designed for uh, use in the operating room. The gigantic machines hang from the ceiling. You bring into the room. So, so they're plethora of they're they're like at least what I would say about ten different types of devices that are used, and they just become a tool, uh, all the arsenal in uh, clinic clinicians' pocket to use to address different needs uh, in in routine care scenarios. And then ours is a brand new category of portable point of care MR that you bring into the patient's bedside. It's fascinating. So you're changing the game, right? Like you're, you really are, you know, that you said it was an arms race to build the bigger imagery and now you're bringing convenience to that. Right. And, yeah. and what does, you know, you, there's all these different types of MR strengths, right. And, and different types of screening. What's, what's the most common used for scanning for stroke? It's the 1.5 Tesla uh, scanners okay. are the most common. These are the big machines that you see in the basement right. of hospitals. That's the most common. Uh, three Tesla is probably the second most common uh, scanner field strength that is out there. Mm -hmm. So when you joined Hyperfine, was was this mission already like? Did was it a, a genius bank? Uh, you know, of Dr. Rothenberg, like did did he have the concept the idea and like what what really you know brought you to the the space you are right now to ultimately be you know rolling this out commercially yeah i'll tell you my reason my why like why do i do things i do right mm -hmm. I, I try to solve solve problems that somebody i love is affected by it and create a social impact at the same time um so that's kind of my inner why and and uh and jonathan started this uh this idea for exactly same reason right so um, he had personal things in which he was getting a lot of MRs on a frequent basis. And he asked that question, why do I have to go to MR? Why can't the MR come to me? And put together a group of scientists, advisors, and engineers and uh, gave them a challenge. Can you 
do imaging in a portable manner. And the first reaction everybody has is that physics doesn't work like that. And then the question is why? And then when they start going through those whys and you're like, well, why not? And then suddenly realize like, oh yeah, these are all artificial boundaries and you can actually think about it. So, so, so he, he literally has the same reason why I joined Hyperfine. It was somebody in, you know, he himself and somebody that he loves had a problem and he asked the question, why, how can we bring the MR? Mine was, and we, uh, you know, my mom, who is my role model, one day woke up and wasn't speaking and had a weakness in her left arm and left leg. And, you know, she's in Pakistan and get a call from my sister, um, you know, that, hey, what do I do? And it's two in the morning. And we are we live in a city that is size of Philadelphia with zero MR scanners. Right. I mean, population size of Philadelphia with no MR scanners. Right. So now my sister has to drive my mom two and a half hours to Karachi, the bigger city where the MR is, and I'm getting making sure she's getting scanned on time, people are ready, and uh, waiting for those three hours to get the images and making sure there's no stroke. Fortunately, she didn't have any stroke. Actually, she recovered from the symptom by the time they arrived uh, to the imaging center. But in my mind, that happened, and I'm starting to think, how do I solve this problem, right? How do I... And my initial reaction was like, can I get some donations to put a scanner in our in the city down there? And then six months after that event is when I got a call from Jonathan with this crazy idea of have we make a portable MR scanner? And mine was like, yeah, that needs to be in my home. <laughs> and so, so that's what got me into it. Uh, when I came on board, uh, the team was already on the on the path to submit to FDA for the clearance. Uh, um, you know, help optimize what the go-to-market strategy needs to be, build the leadership team, did the funding round that needed to happen, and uh, then help take the company public as part of the process and uh, refine the strategy on uh, on what the product should be doing, what should we focus on, what use cases are, and really, really ingraining the team that, you know, our value, number one value is patient first. Uh, and uh, it's it's unfortunate a lot of even hospitals don't think that way, right? And and technology companies don't think that way. Like when you think the patient is the first person you're serving, they are the top of the pyramid. Then it's the physician and the staff taking care of the patient. Then is the hospital administration taking, you know, then is the shareholders. Then you have your priority aligned the right way and you solve the right problems and you go in the right direction. Uh, and that was the reason for being here. and. Uh, really aligning with how Jonathan thought of where the company should and uh, that work clicked in my head also. I, I love, I he love hearing that backstory and, and the mission aligning and the, and the timing. I'm always feel that something happens for a reason and that timing, as you yeah. described, you know, that, that, that's, you know, Mike and I are on a similar journey in terms of our mission here with our podcast and, um, I, so you said something really interesting in describing the product line. You said you took a, an IBM, essentially not using term, but a mainframe and you brought it in to the size of a laptop. Can you, can you talk about that, the technology a little bit and, and how that can come to, to happen? And, and, and also you must have a lot of happy fans in, 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 in the part of the clinical team, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm married to an RN, so I, I, I totally understand 
the heavy lift it is and sometimes a heavy lift to get a patient down into that basement you described and the and the the resources it takes so can you talk a little bit about the you know the technology that powers this because we talked a little bit about the tesla and the the strength um i'd love to hear more about the technology sure so if you if think of it this way right so why did Tesla make the successful electric car and why couldn't Toyota GM4 do it? Because there's something ingrained in the incumbent's brain that they, it's hard for them to get out of. In car scenario, it was the combustion engine. Right? So they were building hybrid cars, but they couldn't get out of that, that mindset, like how would we go full electric, right? In MR, there's the same fundamental belief that you need homogeneous magnetic field to perfectly homogeneous field to, to create beautiful images. The reason is when MR started, we just didn't have the compute power, right? In the 70s and 80s. So these principles of having homogeneous genetic magnetic fields started in those days where you couldn't correct for inhomogeneity or distortion of the field in software because it required a lot of compute power. So, so that was number one, right? Once we realized it kind of needs to move around. Then we realize we ask the question: How will we create a homogeneous field when you could be parked right next to a gigantic pillar in a hospital with rebar steel inside it? It's going to distort the field. You could be parked next to a gigantic oxygen tank. That's going to distort the field. So we had to throw out that concept. Like, well, we will never have a homogeneous field. We'll have to correct it in software. So that was number one. That kind of okay, fine. Now we can actually move it around. Next question was, well, how big can we get it? And we realized that it has to go through a patient's standard hospital door. So then that limit the size, the width of the device, right? So then it's like, okay, fine, how do we do this now? Like it has to be under 33 inches so that it can go through a typical uh, hospital uh, door very easily. Um, and then obviously, you know, how do you reduce projectile risk so people's things are not flying around that, limited to the field strength. So we had to go down to 64 millitesla or 0 0.06 Tesla um, uh, scanner. And when, when you, so that was the next thing. The third thing was that we, typical MR scanner requires a lot of power, right? This almost takes as much power as a nuclear submarine, right? It has, you know, electromagnets, requires cooling, requires gases, you know, that are cooling it almost to absolute, absolute zero. And that requires a lot of power. And we wanted to be able to plug into any wall outlet, which meant we had to use permanent magnets. We couldn't use electromagnets. We had to use permanent magnets. So that, that reinforced that idea. And the last thing was the noise in the environment. Typical MR room is shielded in a Faraday cage. So it's a copper cage that they uh, put the magnet in so that you know in noise from your cell phones the radio frequency noise and electromagnetic noise from light fixtures from monitors is not interfering with the signal coming from the tissues that you're imaging and we had to figure out how to solve that without a shield so we came up with uh, noise cancelling technology just like noise cancelling headphones do to cancel out the environmental electromagnetic and RF noise in this. So it was figuring out how to correct images and not rely on homogeneous magnetic field. It was figuring out noise cancellation for environmental noise. It was figuring out how to, how to run the magnet in, in a normal electric outlet. So now we only require 
uh, power as a coffee maker does. If you can plug a coffee maker in, you can plug our scanner in. And it is max 600 watts of power needed, max, right? So you can run it on a, um, I shouldn't be, this is not a, uh, a regulatory cleared, but you can run it on a battery pack if you wanted to do it. <laughs> we don't advertise commercialize that way, but technically you could do it. So, uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that the innovation technology, like that, that had to be brought to be able to deliver something like that. I mean, it's, it's nuanced. And, and for, you know, when you're now describing this to doctors, you know, in, in the hospital, what, what's their first reaction? Are they like, how, it, like, how is this possible? And maybe, you know, in light of that, you know, we could maybe cover some of the clinical, uh, recent clinical trials that you guys are diving into to prove this efficacy. I think that's the, exactly the first reaction, right? That's like, what, like is that even possible or not? One thing I didn't mention was that because we're using such a low field strength, um, the signal is very low and we use uh, AI machine learning and uh, to really recreate the image and using that to generate uh, diagnostic quality images. So that was one of the fourth innovation that we did. I think the, 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 it's very interesting, right? It really depends on who we're talking to and what is the pain point they feel. So, if, so our primary call point is, has been neurocritical care and neuro ICU and uh, post-stroke patient care in the hospital. And as you mentioned, you know, the, the, your, your wife being nurse, David, that's where we get immediate reactions, right? We literally, when we do demos, we go in the hospital, it's the nurses that clap and give us, you know, standing ovation when we are leaving from the thing because they feel the most pain when you have to transfer an ICU patient who's on multiple IV lines, multiple drips, none of them are compatible on a ventilator on a cardiac monitor, on a non-compatible bed, you have to now convert all of that stuff into MR-compatible equipment, then go down with the patient, sign off all your other patients that you were managing to somebody else to go deal with, respiratory therapist, everybody goes down. It's like a you know giant expedition that, uh, that happens every time. Yeah, and just not to interrupt, but then you hope that nothing goes bad on the way down. Right. Exactly. Right. And 20 to 40 percent of these transport patients who are transported have some adverse event that create more complication and other things. So so that's where, you know, you start with the value. Right. So they they see the immediate value. The clinicians taking care of patient in the neuro ICU see the value immediately because they order an MR scanner in the morning and it may be 25, 26 hours before they get the results because of all the logistics to go figure out how to go image the patient. Um, and, and, and the hospital administration, right? I mean, with the new value-based care and, and DRG-based billing, if you're keeping the patient longer in the ICU, it's actually costing the hospital more, right? So they're incentivized to move these patients out of the ICUs and step-down units and discharge them out uh, and make those right decisions for the patient even for the patient also, right? Reduce their cost of care by making decisions quickly. And, and as you guys said, right? Um, time is brain, right? The faster you can make those decisions, the faster you have better outcomes you have. So it's a win-win for everybody. It's win for the clinicians, win for the nursing staff, win for the patient, and win for the uh, hospital administration. One of the things I always used to say is that, you know, when you come in with a breakthrough technology, you, you always, somebody always, you know, uh, doesn't doesn't win, right? So when robotic surgery came out, 
you know, people, nurses hated it, right? Because it was complex to set it up. It cost more to the hospital than not doing it. So there were a lot of headwinds against it. But here, they're not, right? It's, it's, it's benefiting everybody who's actually uh, using it. I know, Mike, you wanted to ask about the clinical trials. I just had one question. Um, so all the, so you eliminate the transport time and all the other risks that go along with that. All the MRI pre-screening uh, precautions are still taken. It's just you're bringing that machine to your technology to the bedside. Um, how long does a, does, a, does a scan take from... Is the time is the time as the actual imaging sequence is it about the same time or what what does that look like and how does that play out? It's slightly slightly longer than again we, you know we are twenty three times less magnetic field strength so so you have to scan longer to be able to get the signal coming in so we're probably a couple of minutes more per sequence so end up being maybe five minutes ten minutes depending on what the exam protocol is longer than what you would do at 1.5. So, so number one is our screening protocol is simpler, right? A lot of the risk of EKG leads and things flying around don't exist, right? So you, sim you have a simplified protocol. You don't have to worry about some of the passive metal, right? That typically you would worry about in a, in a conventional MR scanner. You don't have to worry about that. So the simplified screening process, number one. Number two is you're reducing all the transport-related time scanner can sit in the ICU is literally drive from that closet into the patient's room right here. And then you're imaging. So maybe it's 10 minutes longer, but guess what? You saved hours of time overall. The, the one thing I forgot to mention was that how does it benefit radiology, right? So a typical ICU patient takes three slots in an MR scanner because of the complexity of setting the patient up, getting it in there and all the stuff. They could do three outpatients and the same time they would do one inpatient, right? That's how they benefit also, you know, both from a patient throughput point of view as well as financially, but, you know, throughput is more important in, in my mind to get more and more patients done. So, so absolutely, right? Even though the actual scan time is probably 10 minutes longer, the overall time savings is in hours. Uh, and to jump back, you you mentioned um, the use of machine learning to improve the image quality, right? Um, you've also announced a recent partnership with Viz AI, who've used a um, you know machine learning and, and artificial intelligence to more so aid in the clinical decision support of you know the the imaging process, right? Um, can you speak to you know that partnership and how the two technologies are coming together? Yeah, absolutely. So I think what, what Vizia has and, and a lot of the companies that are coming out in the future are thinking about it, thinking about the care continuum, not just once point in time, but actually here's a patient and what is the journey through this care pathway for stroke in this, in this case, right? And today their care continuum stops when you identify a stroke, and they they always thought of like, okay, fine, we want to be involved in, after we've done treatment, then what's the value of this AI to the process and how do you assess the patient? Well, that's, that's where we fit in, right? We are that post-treatment follow-up imaging modality that is 
observing that stroke long-term, seeing if any complications happening, strokes improving or not. And that was perfect partnership, right? They are in the initial early detection portion of it, identifying the patient who can go for thrombectomy, uh, your stroke, and then patient gets admitted in the ICU and then hyperfine starts. So as you think about from hyper, from this AI point of view, they wanted to be continue to bleed into the care continuum of this patient throughout the journey in the hospital. And we wanted to be part of that journey of care. Uh, and the, the care is happening using a tool in this scenario, this AI, it made sense to partner with them and, and provide those patients and clinicians one, one way to actually manage their patient through the entire journey in the hospital. So our first implementation with Viz AI, the partnership that we're starting, we are starting with just notification aspect of it, right? So today, you know, when the scan is complete, the idea is the scan immediately available, notification goes to the clinician and the entire care team, hey, MR is done, and here, look at it, right? So they can easily look at it. And then you'll see in the future coming out AI applications in partnership with Viz AI, where we are identifying you know, wake up stroke scenarios where there's diffusion fear mismatch and other things and quantifying the strokes long term. But that's, uh, that's you know, roadmap. Uh, you'll see it coming over years. But our initial intent really was to be able to see the images in their app and get notified when the scan is complete. Cool. So, yeah, I mean, they, they've definitely, you know, when you think like, Yep. AI, and you know, they've certainly made a presence in the space. So I'm happy to see this collaboration happen. I think it's going to be, you know, beneficial for both sides. And obviously, like like you pointed to earlier, the patient, right? Ultimately, that's that's who who's you know the the beneficiary. So, yeah, I I'd love to you know just as we start to wrap up here, you know, you've you've announced a couple of recent clinical trials, um, you know, in hospital systems across the country. You know, can you speak to some of those outcomes? Um, and then, you know, what what's your plan to really scale this and and get this as a as a unit across the country and and into hospitals in Pakistan? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, we've done multiple things, right? As part of Jonathan's mission to democratize healthcare and our mission to be everywhere, we partner with uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation earlier on, in which they've deployed. Um, uh, about 25 scanners, uh, 2020 scanners already into uh, limited resource settings. And then they just signed up uh, for additional, uh, I think total of 45 scanners that are going to be deployed in uh, in uh, low, limited resource settings. So in Sub-Saharan Africa, in India and in Pakistan and other places where they're really thinking about, you know, how do you actually provide access to imaging around that, right? So you'll see a lot of publications coming out uh, some have already come out, more coming out in which we are pushing the boundary on both what can we do from an imaging point of view and can detect uh, with our device and also utility of the device and standard operating procedures in those settings. In the U.S., our focus has been mostly in the ICU scenario to date. So a lot of publications that, that have come out are validating and making sure our imaging profile forms at par to CT and MR, what is out there today. So a lot of work at Yale with Dr. Kevin Sheth and at MGH and Dr. Taylor, Taylor Kimberly has been really to show equivalence of our imaging modality with standard of care, both for stroke detection, ischemic strokes, hemorrhagic strokes, uh, extra axial uh, collections, and, um, and just management of the ICU patient um, in the ICU. There have been a lot of work from our UPenn folks on multiple sclerosis. I'm really excited about the work 
that are uh, researchers at Johns Hopkins are doing on ECMO. So ECMO is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or a heart-lung machine. When the patient is put on heart-lung machine, 33% of them get some kind of neurological symptoms abnormalities. But those patients today cannot be imaged on any modality. They can't get a CT scan or an MR. Uh, because, you know, in CT scan, the contrast inject in the vein, well, hey, well, the heart is sitting outside, the machine's pumping the blood, not, not circulation, so it doesn't work. And that machines are not compatible with traditional MR, whereas in our scenario, the, the, well, the study is showing they are. Um, we are planning to start a, a big study on stroke and really documenting and figuring out in the stroke pathway where we fit in. So it's in partnership with MGH, uh, Ohio State University, and uh, SUNY Buffalo. Uh, we'll be starting in Q4, maybe early uh, next year, really looking at what's the value of uh, hyperfine soup in uh, in the stroke pathway. And, and those three sites have different protocols. And it's a multi-center study across three institutions looking at utility of portable MR um, in, in management of stroke patient. And again, the aims really are, can we reduce, you know, time, uh, time to needle type scenarios? Um, can we identify uh, risk? Can we expand uh, the number of patients who can be treated? As you all know, right, only 20% of patients are treated who present with stroke today, right? So how do you expand that treatment window for thrombectomy as well as for IVTPA? That's the uh, that's the goal. I'm going to be real busy, and this is exciting. And I apologize there; I could not mute myself. Um, so you, I just have to ask too, because you you mentioned you know the twenty percent and the treatment. Um, and I know Mike, we're running up on time, so we'll we'll hand you off to the magic question. One question. I just one question on deployment. Um, the last stroke conference we went to, there was a lot of there was a lot of talk about these. I think the term was used: MSUs, mobile stroke units. Um, is is this something that you guys are thinking of too? Is the, can they go in a vehicle and get out in the community? I think uh, I think people are pushing us uh, in that direction. There have been some people that have put scanner in the ambulance and actually done some scanning. Um, I think it's it's really it's it's you know, we need to still do some work really understand the utility of it and how will we actually make it work if we go in that direction. Um, remember, and the, the CT is easy, right? You're just imaging, looking for density. In MR, it's diffusion weighted imaging, and what is what is it? What are we detecting? We're actually detecting motion of water across the cell membrane. Now, now talk about you're detecting very micro motion. <laughs> In a moving object. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> we have enough hard problems to solve. Because now you're adding emotion on top of it. it becomes very challenging, right? So, you wouldn't. Yeah, yeah you wouldn't want my girlfriend driving to get that. Result, <laughs> I'll tell you that. I mean, there are some some interesting things happening, right? The Dr. Donna Roberts at uh, um, you know um, uh, Medical School of South Carolina are is looking at use of the device um, in, in imaging astronauts, right? So when astronauts go for long space flights, they develop neuroocular syndromes when they come back and we don't understand the etiology behind it. And because you've not been able to image uh, astronauts in zero gravity. So she has an amazing you know, proposal out there to try to image uh, the brain in zero gravity. So I think the work that happens over there where we have to now image <laughs> 
while on a spaceship <laughs> will solve the stroke problem also <laughs> one day to space well now this it, it kind of tees up our magic wand question um as as we as we end every show um you know we'd like to kind of get your perspective on future stroke and really to put it in your hands um and i think you've had a long career in this field you know through you know the clinical lens but also a very you know unique lens within you know technology machine learning and the power that that might have um so if you could be handed a magic wand and redesign the stroke care pathway what would that look like for a patient i think for me it's a magic pill that you take as soon as you start developing symptoms and it corrects that right there right so all this stuff becomes irrelevant then, right? You're just treating it yourself. If you if you want me to do magic wand, that's what I would get there. The drug, and, right? Well, then yeah. detection, right? Because detection is the number of the biggest thing though, right? Yeah, I mean, you yeah. know, if you can detect and uh, take something at home that preserves uh, the brain is the ultimate um, uh, thing. And, and people are doing work in it, right? So some of the research that I know are looking at therapeutics that can be can be implemented even by the EMT before the patient even arrives to the hospital that are safe enough that even if you don't have it, it's fine. But actually, it as you know, you guys know, right? How many million neurons per minute um, yep. are compromised? Uh, the more delay it is. So, what if you could do something right away yourself that stops any more brain death happening, and then you can get evaluated and see what is happening, and if you require you know, if you have an occlusion that can be improved and things that can happen future on. So that's my magic one would be magic pill that can nice. stop for the damage of the brain right at home as soon as you start getting symptoms. That's truly that's the best outcome. Yeah, we haven't heard that. I think that's a great <laughs> opportunity for uh, Babylon to explore with uh, Higgy as a you know, <laughs> in-home device stroke detection, right? A little pill dispensary. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, look, I... You know, we do really appreciate you, you taking the time here to to chat with us this evening. I think, you know, again, really having a, a strong understanding of the work that you're doing to be able to, again, like we've kept iterating here, you know, save that door to needle time ultimately impacts that life after stroke and, and really where, where we focus our attention. But I think it was a, a really unique, you know, episode to be able to put a lens on this for folks. So thank you for, you know, sharing your time, your expertise and you know the magic wand was the first of its kind we yeah. haven't heard that one yet so yeah and 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 really thank you for sharing your why yeah, that's mm-hmm. resonated with us and i know it will resonate with our listeners so we're going to put all the uh, resources for your company in the show notes um and i'll encourage listeners who try to want to try to get a visual on this technology go to the website um there's also some great youtube videos that show your technology being presented at radiology conferences and, you know, really cutting, cutting edge stuff and really excited to, to follow how, um, you know, all the great work you're doing. So thanks again. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. Love the interaction. Great. Thanks, Scott.